Well, hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Revelation Wellness Podcast. I'm Elisa Keaton, your host. Whether we're doing Revving the Word, Be Still and Be Loves, or an episode like this where I get to introduce you guys to people in the body of Christ out there, loving God, getting healthy, being whole, and loving others in their unique way. And today you are going to meet our new friend, Vanitha Reisner. Vanitha is the author of a book called Walking Through Fire. It is a memoir of her bewildering time of suffering and the breakthrough with Christ as he met her in her pain. You know, suffering is something that we know is going to come in this world. It's how do we take heart when we have trouble, when we have suffering. Vanitha's story is going to encourage you. I promise. Honestly, as she was telling me her story, I was thinking, it just has to stop. No, again, okay, and now that, and now now that happened? You would have reason, if you were Vanitha, to say, God, enough is enough. But yet, Vanitha has continued to walk through fire. She really feels like part of her call on life and the words that God has given in her heart to get out her mouth and onto pieces of paper is about suffering. And I'm telling you, if we can learn to do suffering well, you guys, the future looks hopeful for us. We're going to have to learn to suffer well. So kick back and listen to Vanitha's story. I'm probably going to need a little Kleenex here and there and be encouraged. But also before you go, because suffering doesn't get the final say, we pray. We are people of prayer. And if you haven't had a chance to make it to our prayer room, Every Wednesday, we are open for prayer. Our prayer room is open. Come and join us for the power of prayer. You can be prayed for or pray for others. Each week, it's a different leader. I get to host it once a month, and it is worship. Uh, There's music kind of going in the background softly so we can just sing and worship. Not that you'll hear me sing or anyone sing, but that you would be in your car at the grocery store, in the carpool lane, going to run your errands at Target. I'm telling you, join us in our prayer room. It will shift your state of being. If you feel frenzied or hurried or hectic or anxious or you and your husband or your wife have a little disagreement going on, come to the prayer room. It's Wednesdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just come and be in the presence with us. We pray for breakthrough for health. We pray for breakthrough for our marriages. We pray for breakthrough in the church and around the world and all the places. We're just going after the Lord together. Revelation Wellness is a house of prayer. So where there is suffering, let there be prayer. All right, y'all. Thanks for hanging out. Let us know if you enjoy this podcast. Share it with a friend. Leave a review on the podcast if you haven't. That blesses us so, so much. And donors, thank you for making this possible. We'll talk to you guys soon. Peace. All right, Revelation Wellness community. I always love these podcasts when I get to meet a new friend. Today, we have Vanitha with us. Vanitha Reisner is the author of Walking Through Fire, a book that is going to inspire any of you who feel like, you know, God, enough is enough. This has been this has been enough. When is enough enough? So, Vanitha, thank you for being here today. We're so excited to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Elisa. I'm looking forward to our conversation. 
give some people background a little bit where you are and what you do right now, and then we'll jump into your message. Okay. Um, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and um, I am a writer, but it's so funny because when people ask me that, I really would say I'm a sufferer who writes. Mm-hmm. I don't write about anything else besides suffering because I don't really think I'm I'm called to do that, and I'm not the greatest writer about anything else. So let's just put that out there. So. I, was, I was looking at your, your press kit, and like, this girl's writing every day of her life, the amount of places that you've contributed your message of suffering to, but- it's a message that needs to be heard. So mm-hmm. you clearly do it well and you clearly have a call for it. So well done. Oh, <laughs> well done. Thank you. Well, it, yeah. It's funny when God calls us to do something, he gives us what we need for it. So amen. Amen. So give people a, a background of your story. Let's say I always love when someone writes a book, I, I write books too. Why? Cause you have to have a burden for it to really yes. sit down for that one thought for a long amount of time in 65,000 words. So tell us why this book, this book, because I've been through all kinds of really different suffering and felt a lot of times pretty much after each thing, like where is God? I feel like God has abandoned me. And then God was better than I ever imagined through all of them. And so I really wanted people to find hope in Jesus because I realized the things that I went through are not, they're unique to me. My story is unique to me, but a lot of the suffering is universal. Right. And there's so many people going through the different pieces that I've been through. And I felt like God kind of entrusted me with all of those pieces so that I could tell people about his goodness. And so that's why I wrote the book. It's a book, about, it's a memoir. It's right. it's recounting the story of some suffering of your life. Would you give people some high point, maybe your short story takeaway of, of this book of maybe points of suffering in your life? Yeah. So tell me, how long do you want my short story thing? Because I can no, go. go. Just go. Or- 10 minutes. <laughs> well, just go, like go until you think you, you've got, you've covered it. Like where did okay. it start for you and where yeah. are you today with it? All right. Well, I'm going to go then. Yeah. Um, so I was born in India to Christian parents. And when mm. I was three months old, I got polio. Now the vaccine had already been developed the decade mm. earlier. Um, nobody even had seen polio, but my, in India, often they used to give the vaccine at six months and I was three months old but the doctors had never seen it. So they gave me the wrong medicine. Basically this doctor that my parents took me to, who was actually a friend gave me typhoid because it was going around. She didn't give me typhoid. Sorry. She gave me medicine for typhoid, which was cortisone, which lowered my fever, which was 105, which is really high for a three month old. But at the same time, it lowered my body's immune system. So within a day or a few days, I was completely paralyzed. And then when my parents took me to another doctor, They said, oh my gosh, she had polio, but there's nothing you can do. Mm. So my parents left India really quickly after that because the doctors said, one, there's nothing we can do here. And two, there's not going to be a lot of services for her. And that is true in a lot of other countries. Like disability is a curse. Mm. And so there Mm. was, you know, it's more like shame on the family. There's no services, no sidewalks, nothing like, you know, any... Um, elevators, just things like that. And so they knew that would be really hard for me. So they left and moved to England. And then I had my first surgery in England, 
moved from England to Canada. And by the time I was 13, I'd had 21 operations. So I just lived in the hospital basically. Wow. And when we moved to Canada, I went to the Shriners Hospital, which was a free hospital in Montreal. But the hard part about that, Elisa, was it was a hospital where you had to live. So I lived there from uh, almost for nine months straight, sometimes six months at a time. And I could only see my parents on weekends because- How old were you at this time? Ward. Um, started probably when I was four, three, four. Wow. And when I was seven, I was there for nine months straight. So okay. when I was seven, I was flat on my back in a body cast. Wow. Saw my parents just on weekends when they would come in. So I kind of grew up with this really weird- life in that there were two TVs mounted on the walls in the ward. And that's what I saw life was, was how other people lived and Mm. didn't really even think of myself as somebody who was living in the same world that other people were. And um, a friend of mine always says, you know, sometimes we look at things and say, that's for other people. And that's what I thought about all the fun things in life was that was for other people. And so I grew up sort of angry at God when I was seven years old, actually. So right after I had been in the hospital with a body cast for the nine months, got back. And that was the first time I was able to walk by myself. So I was seven. Wow. And then my parents rented an apartment exactly across the street from where I went to school. And I wanted to surprise my mom. So I walked home by myself one day or, or tried to, but I left the building And a group of boys um, threw stones at me basically and called me a cripple and they pushed me down. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that was the moment where I thought life is not fair and really I'm not going to fit in and Mm -hmm. felt so embarrassed, honestly, and didn't tell anyone. I remember looking around and thinking, I don't want anyone to see this. I I don't want to be humiliated by this. So Mm -hmm. I went home at seven years old and did not tell my mom what happened. Oh, I didn't tell anyone till probably I was in my thirties. Wow. I just, I just felt like there was something wrong with me. And so that was kind of a strange thing in my life. I was bullied a lot in grade school and really didn't talk about it at all. Like I just come home and stuff it away because I, I didn't know what to make of it. And most of me felt like, this is you. you, you're less than. And so that's why people do this. So that was sort of my view of God, honestly, was um, God doesn't care. And God maybe sees me as a less than, like, why did God create me to let me have a disability? So yeah. I went from angry at God to not believing in God. Mm-hmm. My parents are believers, but I just didn't have their faith. And I went to FCA though, when I was in high school and I went to FCA because all the cute guys in my high school went to FCA. And I, uh, I joke that it's fellowship Fellowship of Christian Christian athletes. athletes, Yeah. And I wanted to fellowship with the athletes. So that's what I did. I fellowship with the athletes. Now, were you at that point still have a disability? Like walking was hard. I love that you decide I'm going to go hang out with the athletes. Yes. So my arms and legs um, were super weak. My legs, I walked with a limp, but had a pretty normal life. My arms have always been super weak, but I just thought, you know what, I'm going to meet all the athletes. So I went to do that. And a friend of mine and I would just sit in the back and we would talk about guys. Like that was the only reason I was there. That was the only reason she was there. But then she went away on a retreat and she came back and said, God is real. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember that day. I remember oh, wow. thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to want to talk about God. And she did. Yeah. She wanted to talk about God. And I was like, oh, please don't do this. But then one night I went home and I just said, okay, God, if you're real, show me. Yeah. And I didn't even say it as nicely as I just said it. I said it kind of arrogantly, like, show me. And then the next day I woke up and nothing seemed different. And so I just said, God, like, if you're real, why did this happen? So I flipped open the Bible, which I had in my nightstand because I had been confirmed in our church, even though I had no faith, but it didn't matter, I guess, at that that point. I never had a testimony, never opened the Bible, but opened it up and asked God, flipped through, went to Leviticus, a lot of other places, and just kind of said, there's nothing here for me. And then finally, I just said, why? What did I do? And then I flipped open to John 9, and is when Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they come upon a man who's blind from birth. Mm-hmm. And the disciples asked Jesus, oh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born He was born blind? And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And that was the moment for me. Like, I had asked this question, why? What had I done? And the disciples were sort of asking the same question, like, what did this guy do? And Jesus answered the why question with something very different, not what had he done, but what was the purpose? Yeah. And so I felt like God was saying that to me, like, it's not because you've done anything. It's because I'm going to use this. And I remember I knelt down by the side of my bed and committed my life to Christ. I I didn't know who Jesus was, but I knew that he knew me. Wow. And so that was sort of the beginning of my walk with God, not even knowing who he was, but trusting like, wow, he has a purpose for my life. And I want to find out what that is. That was at what age? I was 16. You were 16. So high yeah. school, high, high school, school, when your school. friend went away and then you came back. And like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. In high school, which is, this is a little aside kind of wild thing. But when I was in college, I came back and gave my testimony my mom asked me to, and she'd never heard my testimony before, but she was teaching some high school Sunday school class. And she said, Hey, can you come talk to us? And I was like, okay. But I'd never even told my mom. Cause I didn't tell my parents when I committed my life to Christ. Cause we were from a Christian family. Like we didn't, it felt weird to, for me to say that I hadn't been a Christian because I did Bible study and had the right answers. So anyway, so I gave my testimony in the back and my mom was sobbing. And so afterwards I was like, oh, wow, was this, you know, what did, what was different about this? And she said, well, two things. One, I knew when you committed your life to Christ, because you were completely different and just knowing that is incredible. And then she said, well, she said three things. Then she said, when you got polio, I thought, what did I do? Like I was sure as a mom, I had done something wrong. Right. And that was the exact same verse God gave me, gave me. It was not that this man sinned or his parents that he was uh, So she said that gave me comfort and to see that God gave that to you, that was amazing. And then she said, when I was young, she just had prayed and prayed and prayed for healing. And she got this sense that God was saying, oh, she's going to be whole at 16. And my mom honestly said, she thought, I thought that you were just going to get some miraculous physical healing. And that's what I sort of pinned my hopes on was she's going to be healed. Uh And she said, and I'd kind of forgotten about it. But when you were young, all through growing up, I thought she's going to be healed at 16. And then hearing my testimony and realizing I was 
really healed at 16 because um, I committed my life to Christ. So that was just this beautiful way that God brought all of that back. Wow. Okay. Now, next question. Once you gave your life to Christ, start walking, there's kind of a newness of life that your mom's noticing. Did the suffering stop? Well, I thought it was going to, honestly. I thought I was about to live my best life. And I really felt sorry for people who were going through hard things because I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be doing that because one, I'm faithful. And two, I've been through my suffering. I've learned from it. And I I mean, I clearly remember just thinking, I am not going to suffer. And for a lot of years, my life was great. I mean, got went to college, got into all the schools I applied to, got all the jobs I applied to, went to grad school at Stanford. So it was like everything was perfect. And then it wasn't. I mean, I I married a classmate from uh, business school and a few years into our marriage, he had an affair. And so that just sort of started to shatter my view of like, how can this happen? I've been faithful. And We put our marriage back together. Um, God put our marriage back together and um, learned a lot about forgiveness. And that was a Mm. really, it changed my faith from something I sort of knew about. And and I had a Mm. pretty strong faith to this faith where I was like, I need you every moment. Then basically I had not in a row, but I had four miscarriages. So I had a miscarriage, a daughter, a miscarriage, a miscarriage, and a son, a miscarriage. A, a daughter and a miscarriage. So lots of miscarriages, which were really hard because they just, they're sort of the death of a dream and something that you've been waiting for. Like you've planned their life the minute you find out you're pregnant. And yeah, so that's true. That, that was hard. Yeah. And then what became the hardest in that season of life was I found out that uh, my, un, our unborn son, uh, when he was 20 weeks, when I was 20 weeks pregnant, found out he had a heart problem. So he had surgery at birth and Mm -hmm. he was actually honestly doing great, Elisa. And so I thought, okay, God is going to use his life to glorify Mm -hmm. himself and Mm -hmm. was pretty excited about that, but he was doing so well. We took him in for a checkup and there was a substitute doctor who was so excited about how well he was doing that he took him off his medicine And I remember calling a friend of mine who's a pediatric cardiologist and saying, wow, isn't that great? And he was like, "Uh, that was not a good idea. And this was Friday afternoon. And I remember saying, well, what should I do? And John was like, well, call their office. And I said to John, should I go to the ER? And he's like, no, I think think you, you can wait. And I don't know if you've ever had regrets in life, but that's one of those things I would replay. Like, okay, why did I not go? Because- Three days later, Paul woke up in the middle of the night. He screamed, called 911. Um, Dave went with him in the ambulance. And I remember calling John. It was the middle of the night. It was before cell phones. I'm like calling his home. And all he could say was, I'm so sorry. And I got on my knees and I begged God to save Paul. I mean, I begged and begged. Mm -hmm. But went to the hospital. Some friends came, watched our daughter, Katie, who was um, a toddler and found out that Paul had died in the Mm. ER. And that was this real disappointment in God, in everything that Mm. I believed in, because I Mm -hmm. thought everything sort of is going to tie up with a bow if I'm faithful. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. felt like I had been faithful and there was no bow. Mm -hmm. 
And at first I felt full of faith, honestly, like I, you know, at the hospital, I was like, okay, I'm going to trust God in this. And we spoke at Paul's funeral. We both said, God never makes a mistake. And I really believed that. And people said letters about how that funeral was so moving to them. And probably three weeks later, I wanted to pull every one of those words back because God seemed distant. And I did mm. think God had made a mistake. And so it was one of those really mm. hard things. Like sometimes in a moment of faith, you say something and then later you think, why did I say that? Like the yeah. door is locked and double locked and I don't wow. know. Wow. Yeah. So that was this really dark time for me. Yeah. My Bible sat unopened. I, I just didn't know how to even connect with God. And I remember driving in the car one day and just feeling so distant. And this has got, had gone on for a while. And then I just cried out in the car, God, I can't do this. Help me. And I pushed in a worship CD because it was in the car and I thought, okay, I'll actually, it was a cassette tape. So I'm just telling you that it was a worship cassette and, and started listening to it. And then all of a sudden I thought, God is in this car with me. And I turned off the music because I thought, I just want to experience this. And it was to this day, the most sacred moment of my life. Like, yes, yes. I sensed him. I knew he was with me. It yeah. was this yeah. really unbelievable experience where I kind of felt like I saw the glory of God and it changed wow. and reframed my life. Like I thought if I can um, live in this place, even for a fraction of this, a second and see that heaven is real and that God will never leave me. It's, it's okay. Like it just gave me a different perspective on Paul's okay. life and my life. And it reframed it in light of who Jesus was and eternity. And so that was sort of this moment that was different than the moment when I committed my life to Christ, when I knew God had a purpose for me. And this moment was, I know that God is bigger than anything I will ever go through. And so that reframed my faith. I think it, I went so much deeper with God yeah. through that. Um, yeah. But also thought at that point, and I didn't have this expectation, like I'm not going to have any trouble, but sort of thought, well, you know, now I've lost a child. I definitely had my share. I yeah. had my share. But then six years after Paul died, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which is, you probably don't know what it is. I did not know what it mm -hmm. was um, or what it is, but I had a pain in my arm, went to lots of doctors, finally went to this polio clinic, and they told me that post-polio syndrome is basically means that your body starts going backwards. So I think I mentioned I was a quadriplegic when I first yes. got polio, but then I was able to walk and live, live a pretty normal life. When I, I lived in Boston for four years, walked close to a mile to work, lived on the third floor. Like my life looked pretty normal. I had a limp. But when I went to the clinic, they said, you are going to end up in a wheelchair. Like you will not, and you will not be able to use your arms and legs eventually, your arms particularly, because my arms are really weak. And I used to be an artist. I painted like after Paul died, I painted a set of dishes. I used to sell my paintings. And so they said, you need to stop. And I was obsessed with scrapbooking. And they said, no more, like you cannot do that again. And that was hard for me because it changed my identity. Like I was the person that took meals and all of a sudden I was the person that was getting meals. And 
I remember they gave me all these suggestions, Elisa, and I said to them, what happens if I don't do those right now? Now, my girls were pretty young then, and I was in my late 30s. And they said, um, if you don't do this in 10 years, somebody is going to be feeding you. So that's wow. sobering. Like, okay, wow, right. I've got to stop. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I joke around that I, I did stop vacuuming, you know, doing the laundry. I was able to, you know, give those things up like a trooper. <laughs> but um, I really struggled with giving up the things that I loved. I loved to cook. And it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was that it was painful and I was not going to be able to use my limbs if I kept doing it. And the analogy for post-polio is like, your body, your energy is like money in a bank. And every time you do something, you make a withdrawal, but you can't make any deposits. So I have a certain amount of energy and everything I do is making me weaker. And so that was just a very sobering thought of how do I maintain the energy that I have? How do I keep that? And how do I make these choices of, do I do this thing for my child that is going to be very costly for me, but yeah. means a lot to them. And, you know, the trade-offs that we all make of what's best for our own health, but what does it look to love, like to love someone who really is dependent on you and needs you? Mm. So those were choices I was working on making. It was a very, very hard, um, it was a very hard season for me. And um, I didn't know this quote, but this quote from John Piper really kind of defines what I, what I dealt with. And it's, um, Occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the loss, feel the pain, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life he's given you. Phew. And so that's what I had to do. Like I would go back and forth from occasionally really grieving it and crying yes. and saying, God, yes. I don't know what to do yes. with this. Yes. And then just saying, okay, I got to wash my face and trust God and embrace the life that he's given me. So... Well, that was sort of this tension that went back and yes. forth, sensed that God was in that, even in the everyday decisions. And then six years after that diagnosis, my husband came home and told me he was leaving for someone else. And that almost shattered me because I had, we had two daughters who were adolescents at the time, 10 and 13, and our world crumbled. Like I still had post-polio, so I was still responsible for mm-hmm. You know, now I had to drive them. I had to cook. I had to do all the mm. things that he had been helping with. Mm. Uh, he moved to another state and my kids fell apart. You know, we were like the perfect mm. Christian family before that, mm. you know, brave mom. I taught um, mm-hmm. women's Bible study, super involved in the church. And all of a sudden people were whispering about us and wondering what was real. And I was wondering what was real, honestly. Because when your life is sort of public and people in the church know you, you're the Bible study teacher and your husband leaves, like there's a million questions about what did you do wrong? What was going on? Were you living this fake life? And that's so painful to deal with for yourself as well as your kids. And basically to have to say, I had no idea. Like people would say to me, you had to have known he was having an affair. I was like, no, I I had no idea. Like maybe I'm just that naive, but I didn't know the kids didn't know. And so there was just layers of loss in that. And I think that happens so much in loss. There's just layers of it that you uncover, you know? So there was the, my kids pretty much 
gave up their faith for a long time. I remember my daughter had just been baptized when my husband left and he actually participated in baptizing her. And can I ask how old your daughters were mm, at that time? 10 and 13. So oh, my yeah. daughter had been 13. Mm-hmm. And so it was just crushing. And I remember mm-hmm. one time I said to her, um, we just need to trust God. And she stood up, got a, there was a Kleenex box on the table and she threw it at me and said, I don't want anything to do with your God. So it went from her God to my God. And so that was just so hard. That was maybe the hardest piece. It was also hard knowing I had to drive my kids. I mean, the oldest was 13. So it was three years from driving. And that was using up all my energy. And there was nobody else to do it. No, my friends helped amazingly then because a lot of them, I mean, all of them knew that I couldn't do this on my own. So it like took a village. I mean, people were there helping me, but just the burden of raising my kids was hard. And yeah, well, but God, God showed up for me in ways, Elisa, that I cannot even describe. Like I loved the Bible before that. I would say I learned about lament um, after Paul died, but I learned to hear God after Dave left. Like I would get up in the morning. I remember the first day I was like, okay, my life is a mess. And I was homeschooling my kids, which is, was on top Gosh, of it very hard. No, so I was that's like, that's energy them. draining. And meanwhile, yes. the post polio, goodness. Yes. Gracious. And it's so funny because my husband and I had made that decision and we knew it was going to be hard. And he's like, we're going to help you. The girls are going to help you because we know this is going to take your energy. But we had decided this was the best thing for our family. And then I'm doing it by myself. Yourself. Oh, and they're angry. And so it wasn't going. And I'm not the most, most patient person on the very best day. So you can just imagine how hard it was for me and for my children, I would say. Oh, but it was, um, it was really there. I remember getting up super early in the morning and just opening the Bible. And I remember so many times praying Psalm 119.25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Mm-hmm. And God did. I mean, he did. Like the word became living. And one thing God did that was really incredible is I think I used to approach my quiet time with, okay, let me um, let me read this, whatever I'm supposed to read. And if I get something out of it, great. If I don't, that's okay. You know, I can just go on with my day. Well, I needed something out of it. So I would just say, God, I need you to show me something. I would just ask and expect God to show up. Every single day, God showed up. God showed me something. So my time with God moved from this, like, okay, I check off the box. I feel good about myself that I did it to, wow, God is there waiting for me, meeting me. He has something to tell me. Yes. It it has transformed how I view the Bible and how I view the way God Yes, He's going to be there. We just need to ask him. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so true. It's so true of the mindset of not I uh, check the box, but that God wants to reveal himself to you each day. If our mind is looking for it, he's clear in his word. If you look for me, you'll find me. Ask, seek, knock. Like having that real inquisitive, I know he's there and I know he's going to speak. Like, oh, changes yes. everything. I mean, and it's so funny. It's such a basic thing, but I think so often we forget to <laughs> say that. Like, God, Mm -hmm. I need you to show up, like speak Mm -hmm. to me, talk to me, meet me. Mm -hmm. But we, we forget. And I still forget. I mean, sometimes I like, I'm reading the Bible and I realize like, this is a spiritual book. I cannot understand it on my own. And Uh I find Psalm 19, 18, and which is open my eyes that I would see wonderful things in your law. 
Yeah. So I say, open my eyes and God does, but we just don't ask and we figure we can figure it out on our own. Well, we really can't. Amen. 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 So it's just amazing to me when we ask God how, how he answers us. Yes. Yes. We, he hears us. We don't us. have because we don't ask. So that's so good. So uh, did that bring you to present day? Like, okay. So present day. So my um, ex-husband and I got divorced. We went back and forth for three years, which was pretty painful. He wasn't sure whether he wanted to stay or leave. And that was hard. And I didn't know where God wanted me to put my heart. And and I think he honestly was wrestling with what God wanted him to do because he is a believer. And so it was just very complicated. Yeah. Layers of complication um, that really don't go into much here, but um, it, it was a gut-wrenching decision ultimately for us to get divorced, but felt like he wanted, we both felt like this was what we needed to do. He remarried. He has another family now and, and he's walking with God. So I don't want to say that, um, he's a horrible guy, but you know, we all have our own demons and our own stuff. So I'm right. You know, we're friends still, which I'm really appreciative of, but then, um, I didn't know really what to do with my life. Like I was a single mom, my kids were in school and a friend of mine said, you need to start writing. And I was like, writing, I don't write at all. I mean, I literally had not written anything, Yeah. but three people in the same week said, Hey, we've been praying about it. We think you need to start writing. And I was like, okay, wow. I got to listen to that. It was so funny because the next day I said to God, you need to skywrite this for me. If you want me to write, because I don't write. I love that skywriting. Yeah, right. skywriting. So God, I, I go to the mailbox, I open it, and there's a flyer from this continuing ed program that says, do you need to write your life? Like, <laughs> okay, wow. Okay, God, I, I really, I didn't even know you worked through the postal system, but clearly you worked through everything. Uh, that's good. So did took a class on um, on writing and ended up writing a memoir. This is years ago that wasn't published about my childhood. And then figured out, oh, I need to start a blog or something. I have no platform, you know, the world of writing nowadays. It's like, you need a platform. So I started writing um, about suffering and then started writing for Desiring God. And that's sort of how writing happened for me, which had never happened before. And then it was funny, a few years after we were divorced or a little while after we were divorced, my kids were like, hey, you need to, uh, you need to meet somebody. And I was like, "Uh, I'm not going to meet somebody. And they told me to get on online dating, which I have lots of funny stories about that. But um, <laughs> so I did that and met my husband, uh, Joel, and we've been married uh, seven years this month, which nice. has been Wow. Amazing. Wow. Okay. I have to ask, because you went from the devastation of him. I mean, that's, you know, just the, another pound of suffering, especially when someone is saying, verbally in a sense, the message is I'm not choosing you, right? Yeah. Like that yeah. there probably is fewer, it's just in a whole different realm. It's a different realm of being born into suffering than having it come upon you because someone not doesn't choose you. But that being said, we have to talk about forgiveness. Yeah. Where, cause it kind of, you went, you know, you said you worked through some stuff and then now you're still friends, but there had to have been some layers of forgiveness to work through over and over yeah. with him. Can you tell yeah. us about yeah. that? And I would say, honestly, forgiveness is probably the most life-changing thing Amen. besides accepting Christ that I have Preach. ever done. Yeah, It has changed me. And it was funny yeah. because after his first affair, we had worked through forgiveness. And 
I learned a lot then. I remember a counselor saying, um, really forgiving him is giving up the right to hurt him for hurting you. And so that's sort of been my definition is giving up the right to hurt someone else for hurting me. But it was, it was good for me to hear that definition because it doesn't mean saying what they did was okay, which some people think forgiveness is like, oh, it's all in the past. It's over and done, no problems. It kind of, people think it minimizes suffering, but it really doesn't. When you think, when you think about the cross in some ways, like we couldn't make up for our suffering. We couldn't atone for it. So God had to forgive us because there was nothing we could do. Yeah. So forgiveness in some ways is saying, this is so big, you're not going to make up for it. I've got to do something out out of my own heart from God because you're not going to, you can't. Right. So I think forgiveness is bigger than what people think. It's saying what you've done is bigger. Um, It is also not saying we need to be in relationship. Like I think it doesn't mm-hmm. mean restoration. It can, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but it does not mean we need mm-hmm. to get back together. We need to get back into the situation. And that was part of the issue that I had with my ex-husband was, I was like, I really want to see repentance. I want to see mm-hmm. it. I want to know it before mm-hmm. we get back mm-hmm. into just being, living in the same house. And I really felt like God was giving me very clear signs of what that was. And so I felt like I could forgive him without saying, I'm going to take you back. And so I think there's a huge difference in that. But forgiveness is really not holding on to bitterness. It's not rehearsing what someone's done. It's not stacking their offenses on top of each other, which sometimes we do. We think of one thing somebody's done, and then all we do is keep stacking up all the things that they, all the other things they've done. And then we, I would work myself into a snit over it <laughs> and couldn't let go. And then yeah. God says, like, give it to me. Right. So rather than okay. rehearse, we need to release it. Like every time we think of something, it is every single time just saying, God, take this, help me to forgive, help me to, to see them through your eyes. Like it was a very active process for a lot of years because it doesn't, it's not just saying I forgive you. And then it's over. It is yeah. a million little times million. When you have to say that right. to God and ask so, him for strength. So true. So what would you say to someone who says, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering? Yeah, well, that's what I thought at first before I met Jesus. But I would say God wants to meet you in your suffering. Like he, mm. he we don't understand. I, I mean, Job never saw it. And we don't still even understand what God does with suffering. Like we don't know why he chooses to heal some and not others why some people have really hard lives and some people really don't have as difficulties. Yeah, yeah. But God, you, we do see some ways that God uses it. We don't know why it's there, but we know that God uses it to bring glory to himself in, in ways that we wouldn't expect. We know that it turns us to God. Yeah. We know that there's suffering in a fallen world. And when That's Christians right. suffer and believe in Jesus, it shows the world that there is something so much bigger. Yeah. It changes us too, our character. I mean, I am so much more compassionate and mm. than I ever was before mm-hmm. suffering. So suffering, God holds us. And I think we see the heart of God. Like it was really in my suffering that I got to really sense God's presence. I think the veil is a little thinner. And, and I have this analogy that I came up with last year sometime or about how I think our lives are like, wrapping paper. And we look at everybody else's wrapping paper and we're like, oh, 
you're wrapping paper, you have better bows. You know, we spend our lives comparing ourselves to other yeah. people. Right. And then suffering tears the paper. And all we can see is that, wow, my paper is not like your paper. Like it's not fair that you have beautiful paper and I have torn paper. And so we go to this, like, how could God let my paper tear? And then we realize as we glimpse into the torn paper, that the paper was always hiding a gift. The, right. the paper wasn't anything. Yeah. The paper is not the gift. Yeah. The paper is not the gift. And yeah. God is the gift. Yeah. And when the paper tears, we really see the treasure better. Right. And so I think suffering enables us to see God much better than when oh, we don't God. suffer. So I think those are all ways that God uses suffering. And so I feel like through suffering, God was not only good, he was better than I imagined. So yeah, I would say, yes, a good God allows suffering because he's going to use it in ways that we don't, we don't understand most of them. I mean, right. John Piper has the saying, God is doing a thousand things in everything he does, most of mm -hmm. which we know nothing about. So mm -hmm. we don't know, but we so do true. see these, you know, Job says, you know, these are the edges of God's ways. And we see the edges of God's ways. Wow. The edges of the way he uses suffering. Man. And I'm reminded of Isaiah telling us that his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher. And here we are trying to make God fit our definition of a good life or a good God. And oh, it's just, it really is a series following Christ and living for God is just, it is loss. It's grief. You're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your, your desire for the perfect marriage or whatever it is that the, you've, you know, grab onto as the defining comfort of need. You just kind of lose it so that you can have the greatest, most fulfilling life that whether abounding or abasing plenty or want, I'm satisfied. I'm content in the Lord. I just think that's the story. Your story is a, clearly a story of, you can say it is well, I'm, I'm satisfied. It's been hard suffering is hard, but you, you're not believing the lie. It won't come anymore. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Nor, uh, but it's not like we want to wish it upon ourselves or another, but we do know it serves purpose. Right. And that's such a powerful, powerful position to approach life with. Uh, one final question. What would you say for the person who's suffering today? Oh, I would say, hang on. Like, it's hard. Like, yeah. I don't want to gloss over it and make it seem like every day was fun and easy. Mm. It was hard and gritty. But mm -hmm. there's hope in God and press into God. Like, don't, don't give God the silent treatment and say what, which is what I did for a long time. Like, if I can't say anything nice, I won't say anything at all. Like, give God your heart, cry out to him, open the Psalms up. Like, it's okay to tell God how you feel. If you feel abandoned or forsaken, like tell God, but just keep talking to him. Don't stop talking. Ask him to show you who he is. Like open up the word and say, give me something. And mm -hmm. you will see the goodness mm -hmm. of God in ways that you would never have imagined before. But lean into God. Don't, don't walk away. Don't turn away. Just trust that one day you will see your faith will become sight. So hang on to hope. It's not an outcome. It's a person. Um. I would like to also add to that because I know our audience, you guys are doers, your guys. Okay. Tell me what to do. 
if in, in light of that, it being that you guys come here and listen and you know that your physicality, your body, your your expression of life shows up through your body. Like go ahead, like literally use your words, go to a quiet room, find a space out in the woods or something and go ahead, let the words come out of your mouth. Cause sometimes we hold it in and we think, Oh, I couldn't say that or whatever, but it is to fully express the word emotion means energy in motion emote. And so express that energy, get it in motion and it let, let something come out of your tongue or your mouth that maybe you wouldn't, would surprise you, but it's in you. He's not surprised by it. His lap is big enough for it and suffering doesn't get the final say, let him have it. So yes. Amen. Yeah. So good. I mean, even like, I think the hardest words in the Bible often are, I think Lamentations three, there's some pretty hard things. And yet we see the turn that Jeremiah makes in it. So you know, read Amen. parts of that, read parts yes. of Psalms and yeah. pray them to God, say them to God. They are in yes. the scripture and you Good. see the turn with the Good. psalmist or Jeremiah. I, I feel like that was so healing for me. Psalm 10, Psalm 13, Psalm 6. Yeah. They're amazing Psalms. Yeah, totally. That's so great. And like, read it out loud, read, yes. read get it out that vocalize it, let that, those energy waves and sound just hit and see what it might do. I just think sometimes we try to keep everything so tidy and, and neat. And meanwhile, it eats us alive. It, it, and it absolutely is connected to chronic disease, health, illness, autoimmune disorders, all these things that we go, you know, I, I, I'm, we can't avoid suffering and sickness, but we also can, um, contribute to unnecessary pain or, uh, rapid movement of it. So yeah. Get it, let it out. <laughs> Energy yeah. and motion, everyone. Yeah. Trust God with it. Don't Amen. feel like you need to handle it. God Amen. wants to hold it with you. It's big enough. Yes. Yeah. Okay. How do people find out more about you and go get the book Walking Through Fire? It's available where? Walking um, Through it's Fire? Available, um, it's available on Amazon. It's available at Baker Bookhouse, Barnes and Noble, most of the places you buy books. So so yeah, good, you guys. It's it's a great memoir, well written for someone who's like, I'm not a writer. It's fantastic. I was inspired. Oh, thank you. Totally. So I've I you guys would enjoy the read. It clearly goes through the moments more in depth. And I think it'll help you find words. If you're looking for words for your suffering, Vanitha definitely has found some. So oh, thank you. Thank you. And I also write a blog at vanitha.com. And okay. um this month actually, um in March, I have a newsletter that goes out to subscribers and March's newsletter. So not this month, but um, first week of March is on chronic pain and illness. Wow. And so there's like 10 to 12 resources, like short videos, articles, different things that people that have helped me and that might be, you know, the people that I read that have, um, yeah, inspired me in the midst of chronic pain and illness. Good. Okay. I'm going to ask you three questions. Yeah. One of them is going to be unique to you. So I want you to tell us, you're going like, I don't know how that applies, but I'm going to ask anyway, because I ask every client or every, every friend that comes on, uh, coffee, tea, or kombucha. What's your favorite? Oh, wow. Uh, tea, but I love coffee too. So, okay. Okay. Tea, I, I love London Vogs. I have one every afternoon. That's nice. It's good. I've, London Fog is climbing the charts around here for here from a lot of, a lot of, um, friends. Okay. Uh, now moving your body with the post polio, what is a favorite way to kind of move your body or get in your body as you are walking with this condition? 
Yeah. So I, I use, um, water is probably the best thing for me. So getting in a hot tub or doing something like that is a really good way for me sort of to move my body and not overtax it. So that's good. That's so good. Water. Amen. And your favorite active leisure wear line, Mm, like yoga pants or, you know, like sporty anything. Oh, wow. That is a great question. I don't feel like I'm sporty enough. Now I'm feeling like you're hanging yeah. out with the athletes in FCA. I know. <laughs> what, I what? should. I mean, I'm trying to think of. I I, I really can't wear yoga pants and and like in good conscience because I would that would not be good. But I'm trying to think. I love. Um, yeah, I love comfy fleecy. Like I always there you go. So I love comfy fleecy like, like Patagonia stuff yeah. or yes. yeah. And you're in North Carolina, so yeah, that can get cold over there. For yeah, sure. it gets yeah. So I love yeah, I love I love Sherpa. I love like yes. <laughs> I have this jacket right now that's haunting my husband. I call it my riding sweatshirt jacket, and it is. It's like a big fuzzy, puffy. Uh, he calls it like a, he calls me Fuzzy Bear when I wear it. You know, Fuzzy <laughs> Bears. He's like, oh gosh, you're wearing it again, but it's comfortable and it comforts me when I'm riding because I just got to get my mind into that space. So (laughs) I know what you mean. I'm with you. That's good wear. All right, Vanita, you guys go follow her swipe up on show notes to get more. And we have all the links there too. And um, Vanita, we are grateful to know you and your story. And we definitely don't want you to suffer at all. And we speak all the blessings, but as you learn stuff, come back and teach us, please. Oh, well, thank you. This was wonderful. I loved our conversation. Me too. I love it. Thank you so much. We'll be talking again. Okay. Sounds great.